The Water Values Podcast, Session 6. Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGimsey. Hello and welcome to the Water Values Podcast. I'm Dave McGimsey and thanks for joining me today. In the last episode, I mentioned my family and I were heading on spring break to Moab, Utah for a week of camping. We had a great time and we did get that prime campsite right on the Colorado River. We spent the week hiking in Arches National Park, Canyonlands National Park, rock climbing, and more. The only downer was that someone stole three of our sleeping bags and my son's duffel bag with all of his clothes out of our tent. The kids were very upset by the whole thing, but we used it as a teachable moment. You know, I've camped all my life, and this is the first time I've ever had someone steal anything. Fortunately, everything that was stolen was replaceable, and everyone in the family agreed that despite the theft, it was overall a great spring break. My daughter even got a new nickname on the trip, Spidey, for the way she scurried up the canyon wall when we went rock climbing. By the way, if you go to Moab, Moab Cliffs and Canyons was a great guide company. Evan and Riley were our guides, and they were fantastic. Enough with the spring break talk. Today, we've got a great interview for you. Jim Salzman, a professor at Duke University, joins us, and Jim wrote the book, Drinking Water, A History. And today, we'll talk about some of the issues he raises in the book. We'll discuss the rise, fall, and rise again of bottled water, water as a commodity versus water as a human right, and the best way to provide safe drinking water to those currently without it. I really think you're going to enjoy this session of the Water Values Podcast. If you're a regular listener, you know that before we get into the podcast, I need to make a few disclaimers. I'm a lawyer licensed in Colorado and Indiana, and nothing in this podcast should be taken as providing legal advice or as establishing an attorney-client relationship with you or anyone else. Additionally, nothing in this podcast should be considered a solicitation for professional employment. I'm just a lawyer that thinks water issues are interesting and that public education about water issues is needed. And that includes educating myself about water issues because no one knows everything about water. With that said, let's get on with it. Open the valves, fasten your seatbelts, and here we go. Professor Salzman, may I call you Jim? Absolutely. Terrific. I Really appreciate you coming on to the Water Values Podcast. Thanks so much. Uh, If we could start, could you please uh, tell us a little about your background and how you got interested in water? Sure. So I teach environmental law and policy at Duke University. I have joint appointments at the law school and the School of the Environment. And about, oh gosh, now six, seven years ago, uh, I was sort of casting around for a popular book um, to write. I'd written some case books and articles and such. And I was teaching a class in environmental law and the Clean Water Act, and I was riffing to the students just, you know, observing, isn't it amazing how we've reached a point in human history where more people than ever before have access to clean water just through the taps uh, than any other time in human history, and it's clean water. Uh, and as I, said this, as I said this, I looked around the room, and I was struck that more than half the students had bottles of water sitting on their desks. And I thought, well, that's weird. Right? And if, if the tap water is so safe to drink, what do they think they're buying? And I, I just got interested in this idea of sort of drinking water uh, as, as a resource, as a topic in itself. And I went to the local Barnes & Noble, and there were a lot of books on water and water policy. 
but there was nothing that focused on drinking water as a discrete topic in itself. Uh, and the more I looked into it, the more fascinated I became. And that was the origin of, of the book that I wrote. And, and that book is Drinking Water, A History? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, available uh, on Amazon and other, other good websites. Okay, terrific. We'll, we'll include a link to that in the show notes. Um, okay. Since, since uh, you indicated that bottles of water, and I assume those are commercial bottles of water as contrasted with, say, a, a Camel. Yeah, that's yeah, right. yeah. That's right. Uh, and so, you know, you have a you have a chapter in the book that concerns bottled water and uh, its relationship to tap water. Could you could you take us through what you learned through your research in pre- preparation for that book as to, to how bottled sure. water interacts with tap water? Sure. Now there are a lot of books out there on bottled water. Um, you know, as, as sort of um, right now. Um, Bottle Mania is, is a good book. Let's sort of look at the bottled water market right now. Peter Glick has a good book on it as well. The purpose of my book was to give a, histor- a historical vantage. You know, how did we get to the point where we have bottled water today? And the starting point for that actually is the 19th century with spas, 18th, 19th century. So it's very common uh, for people in Europe to go to spas. They would call it taking the waters. And they would go there partly socially, but mainly for medicinal concerns. It turns out... Um, that the, the, the waters in particular areas, Vichy, Badois, Baden-Baden, um, they have particular therapeutic values because of the dissolved minerals and salts that are in the waters. And so it turns out, you know, Michelangelo wrote about, so he'd go to a certain spa to help, to help his joints. Um, Goethe talked about drinking certain waters to help with, his, um, with the stomach pains. Uh, what happened was that in the mid-19th century, there was a change in, bottled, in bottling technologies. And so for the very first time, you could actually not simply go to the spa to take the waters, but you could take the waters with you from the spa. And the combination of bottled water technology, bottling technologies, and trains, we can transport heavy items a long distance, suddenly created this big market for bottled waters. So that's the first market, and the market is very much medicinal. In the U.S., most bottled water in the 19th century, early 20th century, was sold in pharmacies. And ironically, it was the introduction of chlorination into tap water, 1910, 1920, um, that actually knocked the bottom out of the bottled water market because really for the first time you could get safe tap water. Uh, and the reason that, that, that people were drinking tap water prior to then, at least in the U.S., was primarily health. And so there is a bottled water market through most of the 20th century, but it's, it's bulk water. So you remember the phrase hanging out at the water cooler? Oh, yeah. That, yeah. Was, that was the kind they were talking about. You know, people are hanging out to get a glass of water. It wasn't these sort of single served that we have today. The, the big change happens in the, in the U.S. bottled water, water market happened in the late 1970s, mid to late 1970s, where Perrier, which is actually a, a British company, they come into the U.S. market. Previously, Perrier and other bottled waters had been sold pretty much at restaurants. It was very much a niche market. And Perrier makes a very bold marketing decision to go mass market. And so I don't know if you remember, there was a, um, uh, there was a campaign uh, fronted by Orson Welles. You know, there was a very special place in France. And he sort of <laughs> talked about the, the, uh, the origins and such. And Perrier got very lucky because this campaign coincided with the fitness craze that swept America. Jane Fonda in aerobics. Uh, Jim Fix wrote a book um, about jogging that became a number one bestseller. Uh, and so the, the, the Perrier basically sponsored the New York City Marathon. And so Perrier became very popular all of a sudden. And what happens after that is classic, uh, classic consolidation. 
So Nestle buys Perrier, Coke launches Dasani, and Pepsi launches Aquafina. And all of a sudden, what you have is these products that are now in mass distribution chains. And so I grew up in the 70s, basically. Now, if I'd gone to my local gas station and said I wanted some water, they would have pointed me out to the hose used to fill the radiators. Nowadays, you find bottled water right next to Coke, right next to Pepsi, right next to um, you know, any number of soft drinks or juices because basically these massive companies that have distribution outlets throughout the world, much less throughout the country, they can simply market those. And they've got a much higher profit margin than their other products. Um, so that's a, that's a very the, the book goes into much more detail, but in simple terms, that's sort of how we got to where we are to where we are today. Now, there's another aspect of it uh, that's worth considering, and that is the conception of bottled water, the conception of water more generally. So in the 1990s, uh, the University of Central Florida they were trying to sort of launch their football program, make it big time, and so they built this big stadium, seated 35, 40,000 people in Orlando, Florida, Central Florida, and the inaugural game is against the University of Texas, right? This football powerhouse. Well, people as they came to the to the front gate, anyone who was carrying water or any kind of drink had it taken away by security. They said it was for for security reasons. So they go in the stadium, and they want to get something to drink. Uh, guess how many water fountains are built in the stadium? Well, it's cheating because I've read the book, so uh, there zero, are zero right? exactly. Yeah, as you'll find, there's zero. Um, <laughs> and so, like 18 people went to the hospital. I mean, you know, Central Florida gets warm. It's not a surprise. Why did they think they could do that? Well, they actually their press spokesman told us. He said they could do it because they they viewed water as a profit center, and it really just shows the sort of conceptual change. Whereas water being something that's simply provided as a matter of course, as a service, like a bathroom, you know, provide bathrooms. You, you can't imagine building a stadium without toilets, right? Right. Well, you know, it used to be you couldn't imagine building a stadium without drinking water, without fountains, but that's changed. Uh, and so, you know, for, for your folks listening to your podcast, I challenge them next time they go to a food court, try to find a drinking fountain nearby. Good luck with that. <laughs> Why is that? Well, it's because the, 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 the franchises who rent space around there want to sell bottled water. Right. And they're not going to do that if the tap water is right there. The other thing um, that I found very interesting in reading the book was how bottled water has gone from, as you had just indicated, uh, sold for medicinal purposes back in the 19th, or, uh, 19th century to present day when it's much more bland. Could, could you talk about how it transitioned from? Yeah. So, right, so there are two things going on there. So one of them is why do people buy bottled water? And as you can imagine, there's been a lot of research into this topic. It turns out there are three basic reasons. Um, the first one is convenience, right? You want something to drink uh, and the bottled water happens to be there. So you see this a lot with conferences, right? They don't want to go to the hassle of pouring individual cups with pitchers. They just buy a bunch of bottled waters. Right. Um, the second is fashion, um, much less chic than it used to be, right? So, you know, 10 years ago, Madonna made waves when she said she only bathed in bottled water. Right? <laughs> and snuck some bottled water to the Oscars. Um, so that's, that's sort of the second reason. The third reason uh, is health. Uh, part of it is health because people want something to drink, but they don't want calories, which I think makes a lot of sense. The second is people don't trust tap water, which I think in most cases does not make a lot of sense. Um, it turns out that for weird statutory reasons, bottled water is regulated differently than tap water. So bottled water, water is regulated by the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, 
whereas tap water is regulated by the EPA. And tap water is much, much, much more strictly regulated than bottled water. So in terms of sort of regulatory stricture, there's no reason to think that bottled water is actually safer for you than tap water. Now, it's not to say bottled water is dirty, but there's no reason to think, uh, just you know, from first principles uh, or from marketing, that it would be, uh, it would be dirtier. And in fact, uh, Cleveland, um, uh, there was a, a study done in Cleveland, the Annals of Family Medicine, and they found that roughly a third of the bottled waters that they tested actually had higher contaminant levels than the, than the local tap water. Um, now, one of the reasons for that is there's much less oversight. So a lot of bottled water that's sold does not cross state lines. If it doesn't cross state lines, the feds generally are not involved, which means that it's regulated by the state. But most states don't have officials who actually regulate bottled water. And so in many respects, it's largely, in practice, it's largely an unregulated market. So that's the, sort of, that, that, that's the answer to your question about sort of what about the, the, health, the health part of it. You also said what about the fact that it's bland. So right. If you travel in Europe, um, people at restaurants will order specific bottled water. They'll want a Badois instead of an Evian, instead of a Perrier, if, if they're in France. And there are a bunch of others that are, that are well-known. Um, why do they do that? They do that because the bottled waters have distinctive tastes and distinctive carbonation. They're all coming from different places. In the U.S., bottled water that most people drink actually is refined tap water, right? So mm -hmm, right. Pure Life, Dasani. Aquafina. Uh, what these companies do is they basically take tap water uh, and they pass it through very fine filters, a process called reverse osmosis. And actually, they take so much stuff out that they actually have to put minerals back in to give it a little taste. <laughs> they call it pixie dust. Yeah. Um, but the, the, the thing is, I mean, if you ask someone you know, to, to, to identify a glass of bottled water, they will not be able to do it. Uh, and what's fascinating is that no one cares. That's not why people in the States don't buy bottled water for taste, which is the exact opposite in Europe. And in fact, Europeans are always wondering, why do Americans drink water with ice? Right? For the Europeans, that makes no sense because it actually deadens your taste buds. You mm -hmm. actually can't taste. Um, but in the U.S., we don't really care very much. And in fact, uh, the city of New York, it's probably not yearly, but, but very often – the city of New York will have blind taste tests between New York tap water, which is excellent because it comes from about 120 miles north of New York, and then it's piped down uh, in bottled waters. And most of the time, New York tap water wins out. And the other thing that's interesting, and you point this out in your book, is that, uh, th for example, the European uh, bottled waters, they all have a – they're named after specific places like Peria – well, Peria is actually after a person, but – they're named after specific well, lo they, locations, they, 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 right? They do say the Perrier, even Perrier says exactly where it comes from. Right. Whereas contrasted with these American-style bottled waters, it's Aquafina does it's not a place. It's you know it just it doesn't exist. Aquafina is a concept. Yeah, exactly. And so they're, they're kind of marketing names as contrasted exactly. with. I mean, you know, if you look at an Aquafina label, it's this sort of schematic view of mountaintops. Yeah. So, you know, I grew up in you know I grew up in Boston. I mean, the the Aquafina for Boston comes from Air, Massachusetts. It's about you know 2,500 miles away from the Rockies. Um, you know, it's basically it's an image. Now, what's interesting also is so some bottled waters actually are identified with places. And Poland Springs um, is probably the best example of that. But if you look at the label on Poland Springs, it no longer comes just from Poland Springs. What it'll tell you is it comes from Springs. I think in the main area. I haven't looked at the label in a while. But when you read the label, it's the label you know has to be truthful or they risk being sued, and it's not coming just from Poland Springs. 
the rise of bottled water gives also gives uh, rise to this water as a good or commodity versus water as a human right. And you touch on that in your in your book. Can you talk a little about the debate between water as a, a good or commodity versus as a human right? Yeah, it's a huge issue right now in the developing world, and it is to a certain extent in the U.S. Um, as well. So where we see in the U.S. are these battles that are taking place. There's a fair number of communities now, um, and the book talks about one of these in a place called McLeod, California, uh, where these bottled water companies have come in and basically want to build these big bottling plants. And it's not – they don't want to suck the aquifer dry, but, you know, it's massive, massive withdrawals of water. And there's a big question, who does the water belong to, right? If I move into McLeod and I want to run a bath or I want to fill a swimming pool, that's one thing. Uh, if I come in there and I want to pump out millions of gallons every year to ship across the country, and you're basically paying you know, very low rates, and there are knock-on effects in terms of local streams, in terms of traffic, um, it's a human rights aspect in the, in the sense of who does, who, to whom does the water belong? Right? Does it belong to the community? Does it belong to the utility who can sell it to whomever they want to? And so they're, they're difficult issues. Um, and you know, the marketplace says it belongs to whomever buys it, but there, there are countervailing concerns as well. Where we see this even more accentuated, though, is in the developing world, uh, where roughly half the population in the developing world will suffer from a waterborne disease at some point. Uh, and um, very few people, uh, on the, certainly the, the very poor, have access to water infrastructure. Right? So of the very poorest, they almost always get their water, either they collect it themselves or they, they buy it from water vendors. And so one of the key questions is, what is the proper role of the private sector? What's the proper role of the government in trying to provide water in such trying situations? Uh, and so the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, uh, they for years have been pushing something called structural adjustment. And the idea is basically bring in greater private capital, greater business, greater enterprise to satisfy these needs because there's a sense of state failure. Right? The government cannot provide the necessary water, and so we're going to bring in the private sector. Um, pushing against that are these folks who say, no, 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 there is a human right to water. Right? water is a, the, the government has a fundamental obligation to provide water as a right. right? We don't allow slavery because it might raise some money. Right? There are fundamental things we don't do. There are fundamental things we need to provide because they are basic rights. And the idea basically is that water should be affordable. Uh, and so the response to folks who say, well, we need to privatize, we need to commodify, we need to bring in more market, the response of the, of the, of the human rights people is to say, no, we need to make this a higher priority for the government and actually have them service, service their people uh, rather than simply having water be treated no differently than any other market commodity. The argument basically is water is different. Right. Now, in a lot of the poorer rural areas, it, the infrastructure would cost so much uh, in order to provide water, are there any? Could you talk a little about like point of use and and other? Yeah, um, yeah. So there's a really interesting debate going on right now uh, over exactly what you said, which is how should we best provide water to the poor remote areas where you know building a treatment plant, putting in pipes is simply not simply not feasible. Um, but this sort of gray infrastructure, sort of big building approach, is essentially how the development community has viewed water traditionally. There's some really interesting work that's been done over the last 10 or 15 years basically saying that this has it backwards um, for two reasons. The first is just pure cost, right? This just rules out um, 
safe drinking water in a lot of parts of the globe. Um, the second is there's a lot of evidence showing that even when people have access to safe drinking water from a central source, the water is contaminated by the time they actually consume it because of contamination of carrying it or unclean hands or whatever. And so there's been a big push for something called point of use or POU. And the idea here is just to get the water, bring it home, and then purify it there, purify it right before you use it. And this is very low tech. It might be some sachets of, you know, of chlorine. Uh, it might be basically putting it in a clear bottle and, and keeping it outside for a day or two so the ultraviolet radiation from just leaving it in the sun kills the microbes. Um, there's a lot of energy going on here, and it's a really interesting um, really debate uh, in, the, in the development community going on right now in the sense of what's the right horse to back. Uh, because if, if you're going to back point of use, it's a very different model of development than, we've, than we're used to. Uh, although I think a lot of people, the more people look into it, I think the more they say point of use is probably the way to go. It certainly seems like it would be more economical uh, than than larger infrastructure projects. Again, it depends who's paying, right? If it's, out, right. If, it's, if it's outside donors, then maybe the big infrastructure, because obviously there's oftentimes a link between the contractors who actually build these things and the donor institutions. Uh, for individual costs, um, point of view certainly seems to make um, to make a lot of sense. That's right. Where do you see water going in the future? You promised us 20 minutes. We're coming up on that pretty quickly here. Yeah. Uh, so I just wanted to uh, to get your perspective on where you see sources of water in the future. What what do you think where water is going to look like, uh, at least from a consumptive basis in the future? Yeah, I think there, there are two different angles you have to look at. <clears throat> the first is bulk use, which is things like agriculture, industry. That's coming under a lot of strain right now. Uh, partly climate change, partly growing populations, partly just some weird, um, weird weather recently that may be climate change, may not be. Um, and that's going to, you know, you're seeing in California right now, right? Their right. snow mass is down to 12% of what it should be. Um, that's going to cause some real scrambling and some fundamental, I think, um, restructuring, economic restructuring over the next few decades. Drinking water is different. Drinking water is only a small trickle of the overall water consumption. In terms of volume, it's quite small. But unlike the others, drinking water is, is, is truly critical, right? No society can exist without access to safe drinking water. And so what you're going to see um, is that when there's scarcity, drinking water is going to get a priority. But you're also going to see a focus on securing supplies. So you're going to see, I think, a lot more in, in areas that are wealthy near coasts, you're going to see a lot more desalination plants. Uh, in areas that are poor, you're going to see a lot of innovation through point of use and, and, and things like that. In new communities, I think you're going to see a lot of um, differentiation between gray water and potable water. Right, basically keeping the safe drinking water for drinking. Um, so this is an area, there's, there's no question, with growing population, with climate change, uh, with pollution and such, instead of some bodies of water getting polluted, uh, drinking water is an issue that it, it's going to be with us very much in the next few decades. In a sense, that's as, it, as it has to be. Uh, drinking water has always been a major issue in terms uh, of development and urbanization uh, and quality of life. It has been since, you know, since the earliest settlements, and it will be forever, I think, as well. Okay. Well, we have covered a lot of ground in just over 20 minutes. So I, I just want to say thank you very much for taking some of your time. I know you're incredibly busy, but uh, Professor Salzman, thanks so much uh, for your time. And uh, I will have non-affiliate links in uh, the show notes to the, to the Drinking Water book. Is there anywhere you'd like to send people to learn more about you or more about your book? Sure. So I have a website that's called drinkingwaterhistory.com. 
uh, and they can just go there and there are related articles and if they want to buy the book, um, they can link to that as well. It's called drinkingwaterhistory.com. It's just, you know, as your podcast made clear, it's, it's such an interesting topic uh, and there are just a, a lot of angles to explore. Terrific. Well, thanks very much, Jim. Greatly appreciate it. We'll talk to you soon. Yeah, happy to help. Okay, thanks. That was my interview with Jim Salzman. We covered a lot of ground with him in just over 20 minutes. There were a number of things I found fascinating about that interview. First, the history of bottled water. If you remember our conversation with Mike McGuire in session four of the Water Values podcast and his discussion of Dr. John Leal and George Warren Fuller and their work on the Jersey City, New Jersey water supply, uh, in his discussion, uh, Mike's discussion of the chlorination of the water supply matches up perfectly with Jim's observation that chlorinated drinking water eviscerated the U.S. bottled water market in the early 20th century. And I find the interplay between bottled water and tap water really interesting and appreciate Jim's discussion points on that. Second, Jim's discussion of the commoditization of water and of the human right to water raises a host of issues, and we didn't have time to fully explore all of those issues, but he gave us a lot to think about. His book will provoke even more discussion on those topics. Uh, Finally, the discussion about how to best provide drinking water to those in need was really interesting. Gray infrastructure versus point of use and the various solutions in between will be a topic of debate for years to come, and we'll watch with a close eye how we move forward as a global society on that issue. Well, what interested you about the interview with Jim Salzman? Please let me know by posting a comment on the show notes, which will be posted at thewatervalues.com forward slash pod six. I also appreciate any of your feedback, good, bad, or indifferent, by emailing me at david at thewatervalues.com, or you can tweet at me at DTM1993. Please contact me with suggestions for potential interviewees, water issues you'd like to hear more about, or even just to let me know what you liked and didn't like about the podcast. I'm always trying to improve, and I want to deliver the information about water that you want to hear. I appreciate your support by spreading the word about the Water Values Podcast and by providing an honest review on iTunes and Stitcher. I promise you this, I will never turn down a five-star review. Speaking of which, we've had nine five-star ratings on iTunes and someone just left a one-star rating without giving a reason. So if you've enjoyed listening to the podcast, please consider leaving a rating and a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or any other podcast directory you listen to. By the way, the podcast app Swell just picked up the Water Values podcast, so you can find the podcast on Swell as well. Before I sign off, I wanted to highlight one more water education program. H2O Radio is another program out there that you can check out for interesting stories on water. Their latest story is called Snow Job, and it tells the story of the men and women who measure snowpack up in the mountains. Check them out at h2oradio.org. In closing, thank you for your time, and remember the core message of the Water Values Podcast. Water is our most valuable resource, so please join me by going out into the world and acting like it.
You've been listening to the Water Values Podcast. Thank you for spending some of your day with us.